Okay, thank you for inviting me. And I just want to make a, um, just a note that I, uh, I appreciate being here on the day of um, Bernard Revel Graduate School. I have a lot of Hakarat Hatov to Revel for really um, opening my eyes and my mind to many millennia of um, understanding and interpreting Tanakh that are ongoing. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to share with you some Torah in this context. Um, what we're going to talk about today, I'm just going to rearrange this, uh, here we go. Okay, are two sukim at the end of this past week's parsha, parsha Shmot, that are textually cryptic and difficult to interpret. They're also buried at the end of a parsha, very rich with stories and development and analysis. Um, and the story seems to be totally readable without these two psukim. So much so that when I was first teaching Parsha Shmot, I, uh, I tended to skip them because they took too much time. But upon further reflection, I realized that these psukim were in fact critical to our understanding of the Moshe story. So what we'll do is we'll read these psukim, we'll discuss many of the questions that emerge, and hopefully come up with a uh, broader and richer understanding of Moshe's development in Parsha Shmot. Okay, so if you can open up to the source sheet, let's start a little bit with the context. I always have to rearrange this to be a little uh, shorter. There we go. Let's get a little step stool here. Okay, so I'd like to give you a little bit of the broader context also. So the psukim that we're going to focus on are psukim chavdalid and chavhei, um, chavdalid, chavhei, and chavav um, in source number one, shmot paragdalid. But just to give us a little bit more context, we'll start out looking as well at the psukim that precede this story. So Moshe is on his way. We finish the, um, the narrative of the Sne, where Moshe back and forth, Hashem gives Moshe's mission. Moshe argues with Hashem multiple times. And finally, Moshe seems to be on his way on his journey. Okay, so let's start with Pasuk Yud. I didn't, actually didn't give you Pasuk Yudchen on the source sheet, so I'll read that with you, and then we'll focus, we'll zero in on the Psukim that we'll study today. Okay, so following the incident at the Sna, where Moshe finally accepts his shlichut, his mission, he goes back to Yitro, his father-in-law, and says, I'm going to go and return to my brothers in Egypt to see if they're still alive, what's going on with them. Yitro sends him off. Lech l'shalom. So Moshe, Hashem comes to Moshe again, Hashem says, all those who wanted to kill you previously are dead. So Moshe takes all the essentials, his family, and also the tools that he needs in order to enact his mission, the Matel Kim. So Hashem kind of reinstates his mission again. When you return to Mitzrayim, you'll see you have all the marvels and the signs that I gave in your power, but know again that I'll harden Paro's heart, he won't let the people go, and then you'll set up an equation for Paro. You'll say to him, B'nai Israel are God's Ben Bechor, his firstborn son, and therefore if you, Paro, refuse to let God's firstborn son go, then I will, then I will kill your firstborn, foreshadowing and already alluding to Makat Bechorot. Okay, and Moshe continues on his journey, 
after the three psukim that we're going to focus on, Moshe meets Aaron on his way back to Egypt and continues and ultimately goes into Paro's, Paro's palace. Okay, so now let's look at the psukim that we'll focus on and we're going to talk about all the questions that emerge from just this very short narrative. Okay, And it was on the journey when they stopped in some kind of encampment, some kind of perhaps an inn. Um, and God encountered him. It's interesting, the word pagash is just a very interesting word because pagash, to meet, can be in different contexts. Pagash can be, as it is in the following narrative, in a very friendly context. Aaron is um, in the next in the next story by um, Aaron and Moshe meet in a loving way, but Pagash can also be in a confrontational way. I mean, if you look in some of the Nevi'im Achronim, Pagash could be used in a very militant and confrontational way, which seems to be the way that it's used here. So Hashem, God encountered him, Hamito, and he sought to kill him. So Tzipora took some kind of a flint, a stone, and she gave her son a brit milah. Vatigalu raglav, she touched it to his legs. Vatomer ki chatan damim atali. Okay, now this is a very enigmatic phrase here. Ki chatan damim atali. I'm just going to read you right here. I'm holding the JPS translation. Um, then we'll talk about it more as we go along. You truly are a bridegroom of blood to me. And then, Vayiret Mimenu, and when he let him alone, Azamra, then she added, Chatan Damim Lamulot, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, three very short psukim, but the questions abound. So let's discuss some of the central questions here. I don't think we'll get to, uh, we'll address every single question here, but it's always good to uh, continue your research afterward. This is just the beginning. Um, but some of the central questions here. So first of all, I just want to note that there's the very heavy anthropomorphic tone in this passage is very difficult for many of the commentaries. The fact that, um, that Hashem is described here in such physical terms right, is, um, is difficult. Nobody likes that, especially the Targumen, particularly Unclus and others. They don't like when God is described in such a, he- in such a physical sense. And Unclus and other Targumim also, as well as medieval Parshanim, will often retranslate or reread the story in a different way. Um, we're, we're not going to, fo- I'll show you how this piece plays out later in Rashi, but it, it's interesting to see, to look through the different um, Targumim and see how they kind of downplay on the anthropomorphism that's going, that's going on here. Um, ambiguities. There are tons of ambiguities in this story. Let's give you a few. So let's discuss a few. Okay, and he desired to kill him. Kill who? Right? So who, who, who is being, whose life is being threatened here? Actually, there are three possibilities here. Right? Either Moshe, right? Either, or Vayvakesh Hamito has to be a male figure here. It could be either of Moshe's sons. It could be his older son, Gershom, or it could be his younger son, Eliezer, who we really only just learned about, you know, on his way back to Mitzrayim, that it put two sons on the Chamor, that there's another child involved here also. So we really have three possibilities about whose life was in danger. Okay. Orlat Bena, Sipora, gave her son a Brit Milah. Which son, right? Gershom or Eliezer? Vatigal she touched it to his feet. Whose feet? 
Okay, here our possibilities include Moshe, right, each of his sons, and also, back to our issue of anthropomorphism, this is why it's just important to understand it in that context, if we're assuming, see, most of the Targumim don't want to say that this was God here. It's described in two, the terms are just too physical. So what they reread is that there was some type of a physical malach here, in which case Vatsigali Raglav could actually be, if you're interpreting it in that way, to the feet of the malach, right? Meaning to appease the malach that's coming here threatening his life, then the orlat bina would be touched to the feet of that malach. That's another possibility here. He then Sipora's ambiguous phrase, which we're going to have to understand, chatan damim atali, who's the chatan damim? Now, what'd you say? The baby, how so? Explain. Okay, so there's there's really different possibilities here. So one possibility, right, um, which you just suggested, is that the baby is possible. Now, how is the baby a possibility? What does the word chatan mean? So chatan, we usually think in our context, right? Chatan v'kala, right? A groom, a bridegroom. And that's one possibility in which case if Tzipora was turning to, um, if Tzipora said chatan damim atali, she could be referring to Moshe. But another possibility, the root chet taf nun in Arabic means to circumcise. And because of that, sometimes a baby at the time of circumcision was called by this term, which opens up the possibility that the chatan damim could be Moshe, or who Sipora's chatan, or it could be that Sipora's referring to the baby who's referred to by this term, or the child who's referred to by this term because of the circumcision. So even here, there's multiple possibilities. Um, and then we also, we could, maybe we'll discuss this also, what is the difference between chatan damim atali, chatan damim lamulo? Many, many questions here. Okay? And the ambiguities are huge. I also just want to, but perhaps our most important question is a theological question, a conceptual question here, that if this is Moshe, right, and Moshe's on his way back to achieve Hashem's mission, that Hashem just sent him on to save the Jews from Mitzrayim, then why would Hashem seek to kill Moshe? He just sent him on his mission, he's on his way, and then immediately the first obstacle that he encounters is not Paro or the Jewish people, the first obstacle seems to be God, which is very, very troubling. Now, I know um, that, you, that you just studied, I heard the tail end that you were discussing um, the book Malachim, maybe, in the book of Jubilees with Dr. Halper. So I'll just mention to you that it would be interesting, you could look it up, actually, you can see a copy of Jubilees um, online, you can access it, that because of some of these conceptual issues and because of the way Jubilees discusses Malachim and angels in general, the way that Jubilees retells the story is that Moshe was on his way back to Mitzrayim. He was encountered by a Malach, but not a Malach seeking to do God's will, so to speak, but a Malach who was trying to you know, create an obstacle for Moshe and God's plan. Uh, he doesn't call it the Satan. Jubilees has different names. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So good. Exactly as you just spoke about. So just interesting. If just in, you know to pull this kind of together with what you learned in the last session. Jubilees is true to as was discussed last week and last session, and it it uses this to it kind of mitigate. It raises obviously other conceptual and theological issues, but in terms of the idea that God was trying to. Um, confront Moshe here, right? It answers that, but you know, it wasn't actually God, it was an angel trying to almost, you know, 
trip up God's plan, which raises, as I'm sure you discussed, many other theological issues as well. Um, and the other piece I think we have to understand is what's Zipporah's role, right? What is, um, Zipporah does the Brit Milah here. Um, interestingly, by the way, halakhically, some of the sources are not so comfortable with that because um, really it's, uh, is a woman allowed to do a Brit Milah? Some, some later, inter- that perhaps, I think the Gemara might suggest this or some of the Parshanima of the Gemara that perhaps Zipporah started the Brit Milah and Moshe finished it. But interestingly, Zipporah is highlighted in this story. So what's Zipporah's role? over here. And then lastly, what's the context piece, right? Why is this, what does this add to our narrative of Moshe returning to Mitzrayim? Okay, so let, let's take a look. We set up a lot of questions. Um, we'll see if we'll, we'll, we'll answer as many of them as we can um, in the time that we have. Okay, so let's, let's take a look. If we go back to the source sheet now, um, the classic opinion here which once you look in the Rishonim, all the medieval commentaries they're all addressing, is, it, is what the Gemara statement here. So take a look, source number two is from the Gemara, Mestachat, and Zarin. Okay, so the Gemara gives really three different approaches here. Tanya, Rabbi Yoshua ben Karcha Omer, Gedola Mila, Shekol Zuchuyot, Shasta Moshe Rabbeinu, Lo Amdulo, Kishanit Rashel Men Hamila, Shana Emar, Bifkashew Hashem, Bevakesh Hamito. So Rabbi Yoshua ben Karcha says, the mitzvah of Brit Milah is so critical and important that all the good that Moshe had done before didn't, didn't help him when he was negligent with the mitzvah of Brit Milah. As it says, here's our verse, that despite all that Moshe had done before, the fact that here it seems that he was negligent in the area of Brit Milah, right, assuming that he had a child here, that he did not. The Gemara is assuming that we're talking about the younger child, Eliezer, Right, who never received a Brit Milah. And since Moshe didn't give him a Brit Milah, everything else he had done before didn't protect him in this case because of the critical aspect of Brit Milah. Okay, next opinion. Amar Rebbe. Chas v'shalom Moshe Rabbeinu nitrashel min hamila. It's impossible that Moshe Rabbeinu was negligent from the mitzvah of Brit Milah. How can we jive that with the picture that we have of Moshe Rabbeinu? Ella, kachamar, emol ve'etzei so Moshe had a dilemma. If I give, here I have a new baby. The assumption here in this source is that baby Eliezer is really a baby. Right? And while Moshe, think about think about those first eight days after one has a baby, and poor poor Moshe and Sipora at the same time, they're trying to figure out how to make the journey back to Egypt. And so Moshe's dilemma was, if I give him a Brit Milah, we know that that's dangerous. And that's, that's, that's clear in the Torah, right? In the story of Shechem, that we know that it was the third day after the Brit Milah, when Shimon and Levi came and attacked the city, because the third day is the day that people are the most ill and the most frail, and it's the most difficult. So, so he knows that he can't give him, if he goes on the journey post the Brit Milah, the baby will suffer and will be in danger. And halakhically, that is how we... Uh, you know, it's a, a, a full halakhic concept. But if I give him a brit milah, and then I wait three days in Midian before I continue my journey back to Egypt, but then I'm being negligent on God's commands, because God commanded me, Moshe, return to Egypt. How can I delay a direct and explicit command of God? So if Moshe's dilemma was legitimate, that he couldn't give a Brit Milah because he had these, um, he had reasons, really halakhic reasons, that it would be dangerous for the child. 
Why was he punished? Because it seems that once he got busy with the malon, then all these halachic ramifications of journeying and the danger for the child wouldn't protect him anymore. Okay, now the third approach, yes. Yeah, so it's, so first of all, it's reading into, definitely this opinion is reading into by Hiba Zerach Bamalone that Moshe at this point would, had the opportunity to give a Brit Milah. Actually, some of the Parshanim on the Gemara say there that Moshe was in fact very close to Egypt at this point, at this point, and once he stopped, he could have given the Brit Milah, it would have been safe for the child, and therefore once he stopped and he could have given a Brit Milah, and once he, de- and he delayed, at the Malone and didn't immediately give the Brit Milah, that's why he was now Chayav for not giving the Brit Milah. So you have to interpret the, you mean you have to read into the Psukim to come out with this interpretation, which I think what you're picking up on. Okay, now the last approach is different. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel Ner, Lo Moshe Rabbeinu Bikesh Satan Laharog, Ella Laoto Tinok. So by the way, notice here that he talks about the Satan here, that this is not a, when we're talking about a Malach, we're not talking about a benevolent, uh, figure here. Malach here is a satan, which is interesting just in general in light of what you just discussed, and there's lots to talk about in terms of the role of the satan. So, and also does the satan do Hashem's bidding? Is the satan going against? Well, here it seems that the satan is doing Hashem's bidding, right? Because the context is that Moshe was negligent, and therefore that creates the opening for the satan to appear and bring up an obstacle for Moshe. Okay, so according to this third approach, Lo Moshe Rabbeinu Bikesh Satan Larog, Elo Ototinok, it was the baby. Shana Emar, Ki Chatan Damim Atali. Okay, so this would support the reading that I think that you, someone in the front row, I brought up before, that, um, that it, um, it says, Ki Chatan Damim Atali, you are my Chatan Damim. Say Ure Mi Karoi Chatan, who here is called Chatan? Haveomer Zahatinok. Okay, so Chatan here, according to the third reading, is not talking about Moshe, but it's used in the context of the baby. Now, the benefits, I think, when you just weigh the different approaches, right, the idea of whether Hashem was trying to kill Hashem, Satan, Malach, fill in the blank, um, that whether it was Moshe who was targeted or the baby, the benefit of Moshe is that Moshe is the subject of the story, right, the previous story, right? He's the antecedent before so if you want to change the when it says hamito, God desired to kill him, so it, the natural assumption would be that we're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu. If you want to change the subject, you have to usually say that you're going to change the subject. Um, also, if you're saying that Moshe was the one who was attacked, right, and presumably he suffered, I think the most you know natural assumption would be he suffered some kind of sickness that incapacitated him. That would also explain Sipora's role as the active one stepping up, because if Moshe was incapacitated, then someone else had to step up to fill in the gap. Right? And also, just in terms of our kind of um, logical conceptions, Moshe, Moshe was responsible. We feel like if Moshe didn't give the Brit Milah, he should be the one punished, um, not the child. Now, if we say the benefits of saying that it's the son, right, and in this case, specifically that it's Eliezer who is being targeted, um, are played out by one of the Ga'onim, Rabbi Shmuel ben Chafni, who's quoted by the Ibn Ezra. Rabbi Shmuel ben Chafni says, I didn't give this to you on the source sheet, but feel free to look it up. 
Rishmuel ben Chafni suggests, why would Hashem, back to our original question, why would Hashem kill Moshe if Moshe is on his way to do Hashem's bidding? It just makes more sense that Moshe would be continued and the, the person whose life would be threatened would be Eliezer. Now, interestingly, by the way, Rishmuel ben Chafni solves the fact that, the, that Eliezer is not mentioned by saying, well, you don't really give a name until after the Brit Milah, so Vayivakesh Hamito, a God desired to kill him, had to be written in an ambiguous way because at that time he didn't have, um, he didn't have a name yet. Okay, uh, that's a little bit of a stretch because in general we have lots of things called later, you know, the Harel Kim Choreva is called in the same initially that we have things that are called by later in the Torah, but okay, that's, that's how he deals with it. Now, Rashi, for example, many of the medieval parshanim adopt the Gemara in different ways. So just for example, take a look at Rashi. I gave you Rashi in sources 3, 4, and 5. We're not going to read all of it, but I'll just show you Rashi adopts. So for example, in source 3, the first paragraph, Rashi quotes the first two opinions of the Gemara. Right, that Hashem was threatening Moshe's life. And in general, Rashi, and, and he quotes it from Masech and Nidarim, in general, Rashi selectively chose Midrashim. That was what Rashi, in the 11th century in France, kind of brought to us. He didn't just quote any Midrash. He, he went through it, and he chose what made sense. And he seems to feel, probably in light of the Pshat, in light of the fact that Moshe was the prior subject, it made sense that Moshe was the one who was being attacked. Then he has to explain, this is a little interesting, he has to explain what was happening to Moshe, right? Why was Moshe, and what way was Moshe attacked? So he doesn't go with the sickness route. He says, that there was actually a physical presence. There was a malach. The malach appeared in the form of a snake. It swallowed him up from his head to, really to his, um, until his like waist area. And then swallowed him up from his legs again right back to his thighs, to his waist, he vina Tzipora Shebeshvil Hamilahu. So Tzipora understood that it was because of Brit Milah. So again, they have to explain how there's such a physical piece here. It can't be, we don't, Rashi doesn't want to leave it as that it's God in such an anthropomorphic form. It has to be a Malach that came in a certain form. And Rashi follows this through, then Vatigala Raglav, if it's Moshe who was attacked, Heshli Lifnei Raglav Shel Moshe, Vatomer, and then Rashi in terms of Al-Binah, she said to her son, Ki chatan damim atali, ata, you, my son, hayita goreim lihiyot hachatan sheli nirtzach alecha. You, my son, cause my husband to almost be killed. Horeg ishi atali, you are a husband killer. Yeah, Pa. Okay, great, great question. Okay, Paula, can you repeat the question a little? Yeah, I'll say it. Um, Paula said that if this, that this episode seems to somewhat diminish from Moshe's stature, he's running this country, he's on the most important mission, um, and here Tsipora steps in to do this very important mitzvah for him, it seems to diminish from, from Moshe's stature, and how should we look at that? Okay, good. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, He's human. Exactly. Okay, so let's take a look at that. Let's exactly, we'll use that as a window to explore this issue. I, absolutely, so it's the first sort of a, 
you know, Ezer Konegdo, each of them help each other out, absolutely. And I just want you to notice also one of the beautiful things about Parshat Shmot is that the women really complement the men in this Parsha and take on a lot of leadership roles. If you look through Parshat Shmot, the women really step up and do many powerful acts. But the question here is about, um, also about Moshe. What's, what's going on with Moshe and how do we view Moshe in light of this incident? Okay, so let me expand the question for a minute also here. Um, that there's also a problem with this explanation, right? Assuming that Moshe um, was negligent in Brit Milah, w- w- there's, there are problems that come out with this. So first of all, there's no death penalty or karate for a parent failing to give one son a Brit Milah. Right? At the most, I think the Rambam discusses that a child as an adult, post-death, has some responsibility if he doesn't have a Brit Milah. But there's no, there's no punishment for the parent. And also, I think even stronger than this, Moshe had a very good reason to not give a brit milah. We're not talking about negligence. In light of the Gemara source, we're not talking about simple negligence. Well, even according to the first source, right? According to the first source, right, where Moshe simply says, nitrashel min hamila, delaying brit milah is certainly not something that someone would be chayef with their life. And according to the second source, right, that he had very good reasons Certainly in that case, Moshe seems to be halachically within his ground to delay the Mila. Okay, just to prove that to you for a minute, take a look at source number six. Source number six is a quote from Yehoshua, okay, Parakeh, because if you remember, when B'nai Israel crossed the Yardin, right, and after, um, when Yehoshua led them into Israel, one of the first things they had to deal with was the fact that nobody in that generation had a Brit Milah. You just take a look for a minute, source um, on Pasuk Bet, and notice, by the way, that the language in this story is very similar to the language in our story. So Yoshua is told to take a stone, actually just like Tipora, store um, a flint stone, and give a Brit Milah to B'nai Israel a second time. Right. Ah, okay, so it means, let's see, let's continue the story, and you'll see why is this is the second round. So Yehoshua um, gave the Brit Milah to everybody. So how did this work? This is the reason why they had to have a big Brit Milah ceremony here. So all the people who initially came out of Egypt, the males of military age, they died during the wanderings in the desert. Everybody who left Mitzrayim, they had a Brit Milah, because if you remember, you needed to have a Brit Milah in order to eat from the Korban Pesach. So everybody who left Egypt, they had a Brit Milah. So all the people who were born while they were traveling, they, re- they did not receive a Brit Milah. So it's interesting how the text here goes into a lot of detail to explain that legitimately those who were born during the travels of the desert were not given a Brit Milah, which raises a very difficult question here. Moshe's lack of, Moshe's negligence in giving a Brit Milah seems to be halakhically and, you know, tanakhically supported that this was the proper approach. So 
there must be something else going on here. Let's explore two different possibilities. Okay, so the first possibility, take a look at the next source, which is actually we're going to look for a minute, look at source nine, okay, from Rav Hirsch. So here's what Rav Hirsch says. Rav Hirsch says, was he not embarked on a mission to accomplish the salvation of a people whose whole meaning and importance in the world rests on the idea of Mila? And should he, just he, bring in the midst of this people an uncircumcised child? Rather, let him die than let him introduce his mission with such an example. And then Reverse goes on, no man, not even Moshe, is indispensable to God. And we also see here that God does not overlook any fault in his messengers, not even a Moshe. So first of all, just interesting to note that in general, Rav Hirsch has a very human perspective towards the Avot. Right? One of the famous examples is in his analysis of Yitzchak in giving the brachot to Yaakov and Esav in the way that he raised them. He criticizes Yitzchak for raising Yaakov and Esav in the same way. And that, that was a very beautiful, very, very beautiful piece. But here, the point that he's making is that Mila, Brit Mila, is tied into the fundamental process of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So in order to, in order later, in order to escape Makat Bechorot, the Jews needed to give Korban Pesach, put the blood on the doorpost, and in order to be part of Korban Pesach, the Torah emphasizes you must have a Brit Milah, which symbolized what we needed to do. It was our commitment to God. God committed to us, but we also needed to commit to Hashem. So it's not about the halachic piece of are you allowed, are you not allowed, but how could Moshe come back to the people now with an uncircumcised son when Milah was such an important piece of the leaving Mitzrayim. Okay, so that's one approach about how to deal with this. It's not about the technical halachic piece. Now, another very interesting approach, if you go back up to source um, 8, the Mechilta introduces a different possibility, a very startling possibility, um, which is quoted, I'll show you in the Mechilta, and it's also quoted in Targum Pseudo Yonatan, but let's take a look at the Mechilta first. Okay, this is what the Mechilta suggests. So when Moshe went to Yitro and he said, give me Tzipor, your daughter, as a wife, Yitro said, it's conditional. If you accept what I'm asking of you, then I will give, him to, I'll give her to you as a wife. He said, okay, what is it? What are the conditions that I need to accept? The first child that's born, that child will be for Avodah The rest of them are yours. Give me the firstborn son, which we know the firstborn son, not only in Judaism, but also in other ancient Near Eastern contexts and cultures, was considered at a special status. Um, Yitro said, I'll take the first one, you take the rest. And Moshe accepted it. Okay, now, if the Mechilta didn't say this, then we'd be... But this is, this is from the Mechilta. One second, let's see what happens. Amarlo, Hishbali, he said, promise me. Vayishbalo, and he promised Shana Emar. Now, the Midrash wants to show that this is rooted in the Psukim. It says in the Psukim, in Perak Bet Chafalet, Vayoel Moshe Lashevet et Haish. Moshe, Moshe agreed to live with the man, Yitro. Ein Allah ela Lashon Shvua. Whenever it uses that word vayoel, right, with the shoresh of Allah, that's a language of some kind of promise. Okay, and he goes on to prove that from a few other contexts. Now, then he says, L'fichach, therefore, higdim ha-malach laharoget Moshe. The malach tried to kill Moshe. And therefore, miyad vatikach tziporatzor vatichrot et olat bina v'gomer. And so tziporah stepped up. 
Now, what this mechilta, by the way, in the source above, Targum Yonatan quotes this mechilta. It's the way that Targum Yonatan, um, and Targum Yonatan, we just have to explain, it's really, Targum Yonatan is uh, called by scholars now Targum Pseudo-Yonatan. It was probably not written by the same Yonatan who wrote the Targum on Nevi'im, but you can understand that it was written, it was like a tough yud, abbreviated, and when people found the manuscripts, they said, oh, tough yud, a targum, it must be targum Yonatan. But in fact, now it's uh, targum, it seems that Yonatan ben Uziel wrote a, a parish on Nevi'im, but not on Torah. So tough yud is probably targum Yerushalmi, just like Talmud Yerushalmi. So that's why if you read in scholarly literature, they don't call it um, targum Yonatan anymore. They call it targum pseudo Yonatan. I think even the Barilan now writes that in the, if you're looking it up. Anyway, Targum Yonatan adopts that as the way that he translates the Psukim. And if you look through other, even modern or even sources like Rav Hirsch, he quotes it, and Rav Hirsch actually says, interestingly, if the Mechilta didn't say this, I couldn't say this, but it's in the Mechilta. Um, so what this addresses is that Moshe was attacked, not because he was negligent or he delayed or the halachic reasoning wasn't good enough, but because of this deal that he made with Yitro, um, in which case the baby was, the child was not Eliezer, the new baby, right? But the older child, Gershom, and what the message of Hashem's message may be on your way back to Egypt, you need to embrace your Jewish identity. It's an all-encompassing thing. You can't have one child, Lavodazara. Now is the moment where everybody needs to be embraced with this new, powerful Jewish identity. Now, very, okay, it's a good question. Why would he even make that deal with Chachila? It's a very troubling midrash. Moshe's past, I mean, was a very difficult past. He actually did not grow up with any sense of... He grew up always pulled back and forth between his Jewish identity and his, uh, and his other roots, right? His Egyptian roots. And then he's rejected by the Jews. He ends up in, in Midian. Where was he at that point? I don't know. You know, it's interesting because in general when we interpret Midrashim, sort of an aside, but a lot, it's not, not necessarily is every Midrash meant to be taken literally. Perhaps what this Midrash is bringing up is that Moshe had a conflicted identity. He really spent, he was very much rejected by the Jewish people before he left Egypt, and he spent a lot of time in other places. Um, so the Torah leaves us with a lot of questions here, and perhaps this Mechilta is tapping in on those spaces what, how did Moshe identify himself? And, and whether or not this mechilta is true, if that really happens, you know, literally true, perhaps it's um, sort of an idea true that Moshe's identity was shaped by certain difficult incidents and spaces where he spent time in other places, and now he needs to, now he needs to embrace his new, uh, yeah. Okay, let me, I know we, we have a lot of comments here. I just want to make sure that we get through. Let me take one comment. Go ahead. No? Okay. Yes, correct. Right. The Midrash, I think the Midrash has to come from two places. Yes, I'm sorry. So the idea is that there was a gap in the text. So the Midrash needed to fill in a gap in the text, 100%. So Midrash always is filling in spaces in the text. But what I would still say is there's a lot of ways to fill in spaces. And this is a very difficult, sort of a theologically difficult story. I do think we have to concede that the Midrash felt that Moshe's identity and Moshe was conflicted. Listen, we have this, lots of Midrash about Yitro also, right? Was, who was Yitro? Was, he was Kohen Midian. 
What does that mean? Right? So some sources, some midrashim talk about Yitro's conversion and he adopted Judaism. Other midrashim say no, Yitro was Kohen Midian. He was a, uh, you know, he tried worship. He, he was Kohen, not in the Jewish sense. He was Kohen in his in his world. So it also depends how you understand Yitro, and that's what the midrashim are doing. They're trying to fill in these gaps, but it depends on what your theological assumptions are here. Yeah, one last comment. We'll go ahead. Correct. So there's a big, yeah. Oh, meaning Yitro brings... Yeah, so it's a big question about what happens after this incident that do Tzipora and the children then return back to Midian, right? And then when Moshe, when Yitro comes back post-Matan Torah, he seems to be bringing Tzipora and the children. So there's a, a question here about who Yitro took, what happened after this case. We know that they all went, right? Only the Ramban disagrees with that piece. But we know that they, assumably, they all went. But it's not clear that everybody finished that journey back to Egypt. We'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to that point. Okay, let, let's continue, though. So what this source solves, by the way, despite the difficult theological implication, are that un- explains to us why Moshe was attacked, explains to us why who received the breed. It was Gershom in, con- in, in contradiction to the other sources in the Gemara. And also Tsipora's active role makes sense, not just practically, but also theologically. It was about her. She was the reason that Moshe had to make this deal. So in a sense, it had to be Tsipora who repudiated the deal. Tsipora who moved over and said, I no longer stand with the, the religious perspective of my youth, of my roots, I now stand, Moshe, totally 100% with you. Okay, but what if the problem was not Brit Mila at all? Our assumption all along, right, based on the Gemara, has been that since Mila was what solved the problem, it also must have been what brought the problem on. But what if it wasn't? Okay, so take a look, for example, the person who I think introduces this idea in the medieval world, world of the medieval commentaries is the Rashbam. Okay, writing in Rashi's grandson, right, he writes in the 12th century, but he's very willing to go out on his own if he believes that it's supported by the Pshat. So take a look at source 10. This is what the Rashbam says about the Mila. But Tichrod, it's based on the words, but Tichrod at Orlat Bina. So he says, Ho'ila lo lemosha ha-mitzvah lahatzilo kimo korban. Why did Mila save him? It wasn't because the child was missing Brit Mila, but it was because Mila here acted as if it was a korban, a sacrifice. Gidon and Manoach both encountered Malachim and were afraid. They did gave korbanot. Here, the Mila was as if like a korban. Now, this idea, by the way, the idea that Mila has certain like salvate powers of salvation. Um, back to that Arabic root, by the way, the Chet Tafnun, which means circumcised, also means to save. Okay, and in Philo of Biblos, he suggests a first century CE, a book written in first century CE, um, he talks about ancient Canaanite customs, and he said when there was a grave danger to a community, the king would circumcise his son in order to save the community. So this concept of a Brit Milah being, having power of salvation was also prevalent in the world of the ancient Near East. Okay, so let's assume for a minute, let's go down a different path, that the problem wasn't Brit Milah. So then what could Moshe have been punished for? What was the problem here? Okay, so one, one option 
Let's see if we turn. Okay. One option could be, and this is something that I've seen now in some modern sources. They suggest, based on the words that Sipora said, Sipora said, Chatan Damim Atali. So some modern scholars have suggested that Damim, right, Dam in plural, always implies something about blood guilt. Okay, just to give you an example, in source 11, which talks about the establishment of Arimiklat, cities of refuge, where people could run if they committed an accidental murder, um, it says here, in source 11, Hashem is talking about making sure to establish Arimiklat. And then if you look at um, verse 10, Pasuk Yud, he says, the Pasuk continues, Velo yishapech damnaki bekerev artzacha. So if you build these are miklat, which they needed to do, three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other, then there will be no innocent blood spilled um, in your land. Asher Hashem alecha damim. If you didn't build these are miklat, there would be the blood of violence on your hands. Okay, just, there's a lot of sources. You can look back at Kain and Hevel, etc. Kol achicha, that the bloods of your of your bro- the blood of your brother. So where is this, this Khatan Damim Atali? Where does that lead you? Turn the book at source 12 for a minute. Moshe himself had an incident where there was an act of violence. Okay. I'm not sure how I feel about this opinion, but I want to share it with you. Okay. <laughs> a little bit of a disclaimer. I'm going back and forth about this. Okay, take a look. So when Moshe, his first... Um, leaving of Paro's palace, Vayar besivlotam, he saw their suffering, Vayar ish mitzri make ish ivri so he saw an Egyptian beating a Jewish man, Vayifen kovacho, he looked this way and that, Vayar ki ein ish, and many people say that it's not only that he saw that no one was there, but he saw that no one was stepping up to it, the Jews were immersed in their slavery, Vayach et ha mitzri so he killed the mitzri and he buried him in the sand. Now, Perhaps you're familiar with Midrash, the Midrashim and Shmot Rabbah, which really bend over backwards to justify this act, right? I, don't, I didn't give you that source, but it's interesting to look it up. And 100%, Moshe saved, Moshe, you know, he, he was the first one to fight back against the Egyptian oppression. He really woke them up psychologically as well, aside from dealing with the issue. Um, but the reason why Shmot Rabbah goes so far to explain that the man was the Egyptian was not just guilty of murder, he was also guilty of rape, right? And he was, Moshe saw in Nivua that he would have no proper descendants, is because they're dealing with this issue of was killing, was violence the right way to go here? Especially in light of the fact that the next two instances of oppression, Moshe reacts differently with words and with helping. Um, but take a look at Midrash Patirat Moshe Rabbeinu, which is source 13. It says, okay, God said to Moshe, you're about to die. Amar lefanad, Moshe said, After all that I've done, you're telling me that I'm going to die? I will live. Did I ever tell you that you should kill the Egyptian? Amar lo, Moshe said, right, You killed all the Bechorim of Mitzrayim. I should die because of one Egyptian? Amar lo, Kaddish Baruch Hu, 
you Moshe, you're going to compare yourself to me that I can I can raise, I, I not only kill, I also make people live. You can never live like me and make comparisons to yourself like me. Now, what's interesting here, and again, we have to go back to our idea about Midrash. You know, I don't think the Midrash is trying to say that necessarily this is a recording of an exact conversation that Moshe had with Hashem. And I don't even think this Midrash means that there was no place for what Moshe did when he protected the beaten Jew um, and rose up in his defense. But yet the Midrash Patir at Moshe Rabbeinu raises the question, is there still some blood guilt, damim, on Moshe's hands? And as Moshe leaves his exile, so to speak, in Midian, and he returns back to Egypt, where he will lead the people again, and he will take on the Egyptian violence and cruelty, must there be some kind of ceremony to confront and cleanse him? Okay, one possibility. Let's, let's look at another possibility for a minute. The, let's follow through the Rashbam for a minute, who was the one who introduced that idea that it may not be the Mila. Take a look at, number, at, at source 15 for a minute. What the Rashbam picks up on is over here, at uh, source 14 for a minute, is that we had another incident prior to this, right? Prior to Moshe's confrontation with Hashem at the Malone, where Hashem expressed anger. Okay? It's not, you don't have to dig so far, right? You have to, have to delve into so deep to find it. Shem was angry at Moshe prior to the um, prior to him um, prior to the Malone. If you take a look, do you see if you can see that I underlined where it says Bayichar Af Hashem Moshe. If you go back one pasuk, what happens is that Moshe did not agree at the snap. Moshe did not agree to go easily back to Egypt. They argued, they debated, right back and forth, back and forth, and finally Moshe's fifth refusal, right in in pasuk Yud Gimel. Right, which the commentators understand that Hashem, Moshe said, send someone else, don't send me. And then Yudalid Vayichar Af Hashem B'Moshe. Hashem got angry at Moshe. And he continues to say, Hello, Aaron Achicha Halevi, Yadati Kidaber Yadaberhu, Aaron will play the speaking role, etc. But there's anger there. Okay, and if you look at source 15 in the Rashbam, Vayichar Af Hashem B'Moshe, Vicharon Af Oser Roshem Lefiapshat. Okay, so the, 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 the Rashbam, remember, is a real Pashtun. Now he's borrowing Rashi's phrase here, because Rashi says the same thing, but he takes it in a different way. He says, anytime God expresses anger, there needs to be some kind of consequence to that anger. Kamur lifmanenu, hamito. Right? And God, where's that anger? Where's the punishment that comes from that anger? Well, it's in the next incident, when Moshe's on his way back to Egypt, and God confronts him and tries to kill him, that's where that anger is expressed. That's the punishment for Moshe's refusals about returning back to Egypt. And then he goes on to say, Kishapirashti makes a very interesting parallel. Kishapirashti etzel Yaakov, Kishana aset soleya al yurecho. So it's the same thing that happened with Yaakov. Remember, Yaakov was supposed to confront Esav, right, on, um, on, on his way back, leaving Laban's house. He's supposed to confront Esav. And then, if you look at Surah 17 for a minute, right? Yaakov, everyone seems to be continuing, and Yaakov is alone. He's kind of like draying off the path. Hashem sends a malach who fights with him until dawn. And then he damages right, his leg, the Gid and that was in consequence of Yaakov delaying God's journey. So too Moshe here. Moshe, by resisting so many times, was delaying God's journey. 
Hashem was angry at Moshe and this anger expresses itself in the next incident when Moshe is coming, when Moshe is continuing his journey down to Egypt. Now, why would the incident be, why would it come up here? Right? Why, why not just express that anger right away in the punishment? Why only then? So if you look at Surah 16, Vif Hashem Hamalach, okay, so Rashbam also doesn't want to make it too anthropomorphic, it was a Malach, Ki Hayamit Because Moshe was in fact continuing to hesitate on his mission, and the way he expressed that was by bringing his family. Because really, whenever you bring your family, and as someone with uh, young children, I can tell you, it always slows you down. <laughs> So what the Rashbam is suggesting here is that Moshe's hesitations at the snare were not over. He was still hesitating, and the way he expressed that hesitation was by bringing his whole family with him, creating all these problems that he had to deal with it, and therefore, at that point, that's where Hashem's anger was expressed. Now, I actually read a beautiful... Um, a beautiful, but Rashbam thinks it was the kids. It also could have been stopping at the Malone. There was something going on here that Moshe wasn't on the path. It seems like after, we usually read it that after the snap arguments are over, Moshe's on the journey. But what this is saying is that no, Moshe still wasn't on the journey, and that's why the anger now was expressed in a punishment. Um, actually, there's a beautiful interpretation by Rabbi Tzvi David Kanatapsky. What he suggested is that it wasn't just here that it happened. But even earlier, if you go back to the first source for a minute, what he suggests is that the narrative right before this was still Moshe delaying. The delaying and hesitation didn't end at the snap. So, for example, this pasuk I didn't give you, but remember when Moshe goes back to Yitro to ask permission, look how he asked for permission. Let me go check out and see if those who I left in Egypt are still alive. There's no mention of the mission. There's no mention of a long-term stay. Perhaps Moshe was still not embracing the idea that he needed to be on this all-encompassing mission. And then Hashem comes to Moshe again. He says, Lech shuv Mitzrayim ki Everyone's bothered why God, why God has to give Moshe another command. But perhaps the reason he has to give him another command is because he was still hesitating about taking on this mission. Then Moshe takes his family and he takes the Matel Kim. God gives him again another revelation. This is what you're going to do. This is the mission. And then, then he stops again at the Malone. And finally, God's anger is expressed at his hesitation because the hesitation didn't really end after the snap. According to this approach, Moshe's hesitation still continues. Okay? And this was the reason for God's anger. Now, why, just to pull this kind of full circle, and by the way, just note if you look back, and I underlined in the source, there's a lot of linguistic connections between the two stories. Both of the stories have a lot of the same words. Now, why Brit Milah? Okay, so the, why would Brit Milah save it? So Reshbam said it was some type of a korban, perhaps it was some type of a saving ceremony, but I just saw a very interesting um, interpretation in Rabbi Shmuel Klitzner's book, Wrestling Jacob, and he suggests that when Moshe resisted God, his fourth argument was, or many of his arguments were focused on, um, I have a speech impediment, lo ish varim anochi, I'm not perfect for the job, right? I'm not the right person for the job, I'm physically deficient, so Hashem's message to him is, I created all these physical, right? Who, who, me, who created 
people in their physical sense? Who gave people abilities, disabilities? Who gave it to them? It's me. It's not your physical completeness that's going to bring you along. It's because I chose you and you're the right person for the job. So the idea here is perhaps Hashem is sending Moshe a mission that being physically complete or perfect is not what's going to accomplish the mission for him. It's the fact that he is chosen by God. And this is the reason, and maybe Brit Milah was a sign of taking away some type of physical completeness of a man to show that this is, can be preferred by God. God is not only looking for some type of physical perfection, but God wants, Hashem is saying to Moshe, I want you. Moshe is still not confident that he's the person for the job, and Hashem confronting him with the Malach and forcing this Brit Milah, where Moshe has to make his son's body imperfect, could be a message to Moshe, you're the person for the job, and the humility that you manifested in this way, which can be your biggest strength, can also be your downfall. So take ownership of this. Okay, so let's pull this all together. So we started with the very troubling attempt of Hashem to kill Moshe, or one of Moshe's sons, on the way back to Egypt. According to our first approach, the solution of Mila indicated that the problem was Mila, and this lapse in Mila may have represented a more fundamental disconnect between Moshe's family and his Jewish heritage. And this disconnect makes sense in light of the larger context of Moshe's life and his initial efforts to help his people, um, which led to his exile. The Brit Mila is our earliest sign given to Avram Avinu of our covenant with Hashem and the sacrifice that go along with it. The Brit is an oath. It's a physical symbol of a connection to the community. So now before Moshe goes back to Hashem, he has to fully reconnect to him. However, perhaps Mila, and fully reconnect to the community, but perhaps Mila was the solution, but not the problem. Perhaps the problem was Moshe's self-doubt and his focus on his deficiencies, which plagued him, leaving him unable to embrace the mission wholeheartedly. Now, in this case, Mila may have come to teach him that Hashem wants him to embrace himself as he is and embrace the mission with no further doubts plaguing him about his own self-confidence and the people. And in fact, the story then about Moshe is not disconnected at all. In either framework, it's a coming of age and a transition for Moshe. Hashem is sending Moshe important messages. You must be part of the community and fully part of the community. You must accept the community for who they are and you must accept your leadership and don't allow your humility, your greatest strength, to be your greatest weakness. And I think particularly that it's very powerful that it's Tzipora who steps up to this mission. She, essentially a foreigner from Midian, embraces the covenantal mission from the days of Avram Avinu, which was exemplified through his Brit Milah, and she pushes Moshe to accept with a full heart this next stage and this full role. And I believe also that this message is not just for Moshe. There's a very powerful message for us as well. Um, first of all, accepting our community with all of its deficiencies, which we know, um, like Moshe and Parak Bet, but to really embrace and commit to believing in our community and believing in its improvement and its continued growth. And also tapping into, tapping into what we can do for our community by believing in ourselves and allowing, accepting really some of the, not allowing humility to stagnate our involvement in our own self-development and also in the development of our communities.